Does the 2023 autumn statement give us confidence that England's devolution model is back on track? With a billion pounds announced for round three of the levelling up fund, more money and extensions to investment zones and free ports, where are we now on area-based initiatives? And as November wasn't solely about the autumn statement, what else caught our eye in the world of local economic development and placemaking? I'm David Marlowe and welcome to LED Confidential, the podcast that tries to lift the lid on those intractable, enduring challenges facing those of us working in and on local economic development and placemaking today. And I'm Mike Spicer. Join us as we reflect on the Autumn Statement and other events of interest last month. Uh, David, should we start with uh, devolution then? I know you've been very sceptical in the past of England's devolution models. And we had a few developments, didn't we, over the month? Um, we had the announcement of the Trailblazer deals for Greater Manchester and the West Midlands Combined Authority area. And one promised for the northeast, we had uh, the announcement of something called a level four of the devolution framework, uh, new announcements for Hall in East Yorkshire, Greater Lincolnshire, Lancashire, Cornwall, Devon and Torbay, and even Surrey potentially. So, David, what's not to like? I suppose I should preface it by saying, well, what has been my major criticisms of the England devolution model and does this reassure us that some of those criticisms are being tackled? So I feel that deal-based haggles are not the way to do devolution, that the deals, even the trailblazers, tend to be rather formulaic and limited in scope. They tend to be based more on administrative rather than functional economic geographies, especially outside major city regions. They're relatively small, but there is a huge amount of detailed delivery instruments and, um, in a sense, exam questions that devolved bodies need to answer to get them over the line. So, I mean, I, I guess that's been my criticism. And I think, to be fair, you can level that at the announcements that were made um, in the autumn statement. And I suppose the other thing is, given how long it really takes to land these things, what currency will they have post a general election? So those are some sort of preliminary comments. Having said that, I do think you can do some really useful work on the frameworks that have been laid out in the autumn statement and its accompanying documents. You're almost as a pot boiler for a discussion with the next government when it comes in. So, I mean, that's my sort of overview. I can go into some specifics if you like, but, but where are you coming from on this? I thought the most significant of the various announcements was the publication of the Memorandum of Understanding for the Trailblazer deals. So the Memorandum of Understanding on the Single Financial Settlements, which we, we've covered this topic a number of times on this podcast, but this idea that city regional areas in particular could be treated almost as government departments in public spending terms, so getting a single settlement rather than kind of bits of money from here, there and everywhere. So it kind of establishes a trajectory towards a single pot mechanism that 
memorandum of understanding. And also as well, the level four uh, devolution framework. I mean, that's sort of a stepping stone, isn't it, to a single financial statement for those non-trailblazer combined authorities. So I, I thought those were the those those two things, the level four, the memorandum of understanding was the most significant. But like you, I when you go through the detail, it, it struck me actually how you know, does it really actually the, the single financial statement does that actually get us that much further ahead than where we were pre twenty ten? You know, yes, it's in a mayoral combined authority context rather than an RDA context and a context of large executive agencies. But fundamentally, it seems to me that some of the things, David, that we always used to think of as being a bit nightmarish about that setup still apply here. So. Yeah, there are many, many ways, it seems to me, when you look at the MOU, that central government can assert a right of initiative over mayoral combined authorities. So, for example, it can do it in the way that objectives are agreed. Um, it can do it through its performance management um, arrangements that are set out there, through the way op- delegated spending limits will operate. And there's still, even with that, there is still the potential for budget raids through the operation of the program board which contains all of the contributing departments to that single financial settlement so i just think we're kind of it feels like we've gone back to 2010 albeit in a slightly different context but the fundamentals are quite similar i I don't does that make sense am i just talking nonsense no no does that does that make some sense I mean, I mean, the problem, actually, some of the problems that we have in this podcast is that we always do violently agree. <laughs> um, and, and yeah, you've reflected a number of my my thoughts on the Trailblazer MOU. I mean, again, very um, specific functions, which are existing functions, which are in scope of the MOU. I think there's a you know, growth, housing and regen, adult skills. Um, but lots of things that aren't in that you'd want to be in, like you know, innovation, research and development, and so on. Very, very limited ability to vary between the existing departments that make up the uh, the single part. So I think is it, is it just ten percent you can vary across the five themes, and anyway. Only two of the themes, adult skills and transport, is it, that are the first two, the first year. It, there, there's some really strong levers that governments can press to ensure that the outcomes framework works for them as much as for the local area. I, I, I think I think there's a glass half full and a glass half empty yeah. way of looking at this, isn't there? So the, the glass half empty interpretation, which is so often where we where we end up in these discussions, but the glass half empty interpretation, I think, is that Whitehall hasn't yet fully come to terms with what devolution is really about or why it matters. And that's quite clear, actually, from the language in the MOU. The, the way I would put it is, it's almost like Whitehall is kind of working its way through the five stages of grief over loss of control. <laughs> so yeah, there's a denial stage and a bargaining stage, and, and so on. and it kind of comes across that way to me. And in, in the in the language, 
But the glass half full interpretation, I suppose, is that it's still a step forward. And any step forward is a step forward, isn't it? And the history of the evolution is that it tends to encourage local areas to want more. You're never satisfied with just what you have because you get a bit more power. You start to see more possibilities. Then you realize that there are other barriers you haven't thought about before that are in the way of those possibilities. So you want more. And I think you definitely see that in places like Greater Manchester that have been so articulate about about those sorts of challenges. So are you a glass half full person, David, or a, gla- a glass half empty, do you think? I think I'm actually a glass half full because I agree with you that we need to build on this to have a more mature and more wide-ranging discussion with a future government. Um, and I think the role for you know, the two of us and our colleagues you know, in the profession, so to speak, you know, is to help these devolved administrations work through some of the issues so we can have an intelligence-informed discussion about it. And the three or the four things that I would really urge, particularly the newer devolved administrations to work on, you know, is one that whole sort of bottom-up right of initiative. What do we really want to do as opposed to being a field administration for Department for Education on adult skills or for Department for Transport on uh, you know, local roads and buses? Secondly, fiscal devolution, where we absolutely need to get that as a, an item on the agendas. Third, the hearts and minds thing. I mean, one of the great things actually about the... The two Andes, for example, in West Midlands and Greater Manchester has been the extent to which they have managed to begin to relate to their local area and sort of capture the imagination for these combined authorities. And I suppose, fourthly, building the leadership teams and effective delivery. So for me, yes, let's try and get these deals over the line, actually, whether they're level two, three or four. Um, and let's actually do some formative work on issues like that so that we can you know, help government take the next step. There are one or two final things I would say before we leave this. You know, there are various, particularly in the level two proposals, there are, there are what I would call chessboard moments. I know we had our chessboard discussion, was it in our August podcast? You know, what on earth was anybody thinking when they actually decided to include in the Cornwall Devo deal that you know, government was going to consider how to better manage Cornish hedges? And, and, and you know, that merits a paragraph. You know, so the UK Infrastructure Bank gets a paragraph in all of these deals, but no more. But Cornish hedges matches the, um, the infrastructure bank. Banking the Cornish deal, and and particularly with the, with actually the level two deals, there does tend to be a lot of that type of that type of moments, which uh, really we need to get away from. Just one final thought, and and I don't know whether this is unfair on the government, given the creation of offlog and and the moves to start to put some meat on the bones of a future um, accountability framework. But I I was struck, actually, how in each of the deals, to the extent that they touched on governance and accountability, 
it was all about kind of accountability from the center to well, fr from local the local areas to the center which sort for me it kind of misses the point which isn't the point that certainly in a mayoral combined authority where you have a directly elected mayor that they become the focus of local accountability and yet i didn't feel that there was much of that in it there wasn't much of a sort of sense of right you're going to be you know responsible for more and more areas it might not be as many as you'd like but it's it's more than what you have now let's talk some more about how that works with local people and i think that was kind of what we touched on in the episode with john tomine which was you know actually the most significant type of accountability is the democratic kind certainly if you're a mayoral combined authority then of course you have that direct accountability through the mayor so you know i i felt that there didn't seem to be any kind of advance on that or any kind of acknowledgement actually in any of the papers or documents relating to the autumn statement that we were seeing a shift of power and right of initiative and therefore local communities had to play a bigger role you know more so than whitehall let's say in holding them to account no you're entirely right there's no there's no accountability of government departments and the secretary of state to the local ambitions of place at all I suppose the other thing I would say, and, and given that we had that um, discussion, I think it was last month, on the National Infrastructure Commission, you know, I'm very struck that the fiscal remit of the National Commission is 1.1 to 1.3% of GVA. So, for example, for Greater Manchester, if they were going to have an infrastructure program of, let's say, 1.3% of GVA, that's a billion quid a year. And, and you know, when government is really offering them a single investment fund of whatever it is, 30, 40, billion, 40 million a year, we've still got a hell of a long way to go. And, and actually, the Greater Manchester Mayor has a right, I think, to say, you're expecting national infrastructure to command that type of level of resource. Here's my billion a year program for Greater Manchester. What do you think? And, and government should say more than, well, just get your, your 30 million done. <laughs> but uh, anyway, we really ought to move on. And this is related, of course, to the autumn statement, which is the progress that government has made on area-based initiatives. And, and I think in the provocation, we put it into two things for for our listeners. One was about the announcements, I think it was just before the autumn statement of the levelling up fund round three, and I think was it was, was it about 50 new new awards. And then the second was the extensions and indeed the slightly more money for investment zones and free ports. So just, just on the detail of, of what was announced, so if we take investment zones, then essentially three three major developments. The first is that it confirmed the next set of investment zones to be to go live, and those were in Greater Manchester, the West Midlands, and the East Midlands. There was an announcement around increased funding for investment zones, so enlarging the envelope for each zone from eighty million to one hundred and sixty million pounds. Uh, tax reliefs available to businesses in the zone extended from five to ten years, and also some reform to the scope of investment zones and proposals for them to be to include more sectors and, and cluster uh, developments 
those were the, the three things that were announced around investment zones. So it's a sort of deepening and widening of them. Sort of similar set of um, announcements around Freeport. So extended duration of tax reliefs, some increased flexibility for zones to um, operate differently. There was um, the proposal of expansion of, of the Freeport program to more areas and, and so on. Um, and then, as you say, David, the announcements of um, 55 local projects, um, but also I think five five or so a large capital projects that um, were, award, were awarded from the Leveling Up Fund as well, beyond that which had already been announced. So deepening, widening, some PR around announcements was really what was announced at the awesome statement. And I think in terms of where are we now, David, I always... I, I, I cast my mind back to the episode that we had with Professor Pete Tyler at the University of Cambridge, who, of course, is one of the world's foremost experts in this. You know, the point he made, I think, in the episode was that there are some fundamental weaknesses with zonal policy as we've experienced it in the UK over the last 10 or 15 years. And those are that there are no tax incentives for property investors seeking capital growth. Nothing that was announced at the autumn statement changes that. It's still unclear how the tax reliefs and regulatory easements available in zones differ or are superior to those that are available outside the zones. Nothing at the autumn statement really changes that very much. They remain pretty ungenerous by American standards, certainly. And even by past British standards, they remain pretty ungenerous. There are still restrictions on the size and scope and timing of them, which interfere with program development. And there is a bit of confusion within the guidance around sector versus clusters within designing the zones. And and that's partly what lies behind the announcement that they were including more sectors within the national program. So I don't think we're actually that much further than we were when we spoke to Pete Tyler um, some months ago. The overall look and feel of zonal policy, of area-based initiatives, feels pretty similar to me, except that they're perhaps a bit deeper and a bit wider. I don't know. What do you think? It sounds rather glass half empty (laughs) on this particular topic, Mike. Yeah, it, it remains a hodgepodge. It remains underpowered. It remains very much at risk of displacement. Um, And actually, the zones don't fit together particularly well, you know, in terms of either their neighbouring geographies or, you know, each other, so to speak. So, yeah, I mean, I'm very glass half empty. So, yeah, it, it does seem to me to be another area where there needs to be some new conversations with with the next government. And I suppose what always disappoints me, whether it's about Devo or whether it is about area-based initiatives, is how these announcements come one after the other. But there's never any attempt in the guidance to sort of learn from what has worked well whether it's with uh, devolution agreements since 2010 or whether it is with enterprise zones since about the same time. You know, and it is, as you say, very much like Pete Tyler discussion where 
we're, we're continuing to plow particular government furrows with little reference you know, to what will work well. The other point I would make is that although there was in some senses additional flexibilities, the three new announcements all majored on advanced manufacturing, albeit with slightly different nuances. You know, so so for example, I mean I would love to see an investment zone, you know, that was more rooted in creative and culture, which was actually one of the things that you could have done, you know, up front. Um and secondly, I mean, don't you just hate it when government's headlines, you know, this is going to unlock in Greater Manchester's case one point one billion of private investment. But then when you look at the details, they only actually announced ten million. Yeah, so grossly over-egging a completely indeterminate pudding. I think possibly even more than the Devo stuff, I think one can be legitimately somewhat half-empty. And it really doesn't help mayors and devolved authorities make the whole geography and the whole urban system work better. How would we know if if the zonal agenda had advanced? You know, what what sort of things would we be looking for? And I think for me, you know, one of the reasons why there are so many more zonal initiatives in North America, for instance, than there are in our part of the world, is actually the role of local and state government in promoting them. And of course, in the UK, they are carve outs from national taxation and business rates are technically collected locally but they are effectively national taxes so it seems to me that fiscal devolution is certainly one of the things that affects how the zonal agenda plays out in practice if there is any major advancements in fiscal devolution it's quite possible that you will see more bottom-up type um, zonal initiatives, but we're unlikely to see that at the moment, just because of the way that our that our system works. And of course, the other major issue with zonal initiatives is, is is just how generous are the national tax breaks or regulatory easements going to be? So you'd have to see something much far beyond what we've seen already. And I, and I would argue, just given the mobility of international capital you'd really want to be as generous as certainly as what you see in North America, I would say, certainly what you see in Canada or the United States. That ought to be really the benchmark if the objective is to use these initiatives to drive change in local areas. Uh, But until we see those two things, I think it's always going to feel a bit underpowered, isn't it? A bit weak. Uh, yeah, I, I, th- I think it is. And um, I think we should move on to non-autumn statement stuff that caught our eye. There, there are a couple of things that caught my eye, and non- none of them actually are too far away from what we've discussed already. But I, I do think that November, it seemed to be a month where we had a glut of major announcements relating to industrial facilities of one kind or another. So, of course, we had the announcement by the Japanese car maker Nissan about its 
huge investment in electric, electric uh, vehicle production in Sunderland. Um, Rolls-Royce as well with its announcements um, and around the sustainable aviation fuels and also some quite bullish statements from Rolls-Royce in the news only over the past week or so around its nuclear division and its um, the growth in that sector. Uh, and then, of course, we had the Global Investor Summit that was hosted in the UK by the Prime Minister and a package of investment that was, I think, something like, you know, it was tens of billions. Uh, if you unpacked that, actually, it was quite hard to, to understand exactly what was being announced there because it seemed to me that it was basically the announcement that a number of funds outside of the UK had committed to investing in various things in the UK, but it wasn't clear exactly what those were, whether it was in housing or commercial property or in new businesses or anything else. It felt like a, a month of a lot of announcements, but particularly notable for me were the ones around industrial development. How, how about you, David? What? How did November speak to you outside of the autumn state? I mean, not entirely different, but I wanted to make one point about you know, a, a set of related announcements to do with um, actually Cheltenham as a national cyber capital. And what interested me about this, so in, in November, I think there was a, um, a planning application for about a billion quid of investment in what's called Golden Valley, which is, I think, 47 hectares next to GCHQ, which will be commercial space, which will obviously build off or lever off GCHQ and the cyber capabilities there, but also low-carbon housing and, and other commercial and related development. And that followed a commitment by Cheltenham Borough Council to invest, I think, about $95 million in this National Cyber Innovation Centre. And the reason I wanted to point this out is because, A, it's not particularly a an area-based initiative-driven initiative, and it's not in a primary or even necessarily rapidly progressing Devo area. So for me, it's sort of quite interesting that you don't need necessarily to go cap in hand to government to get globally significant development landed and progressed. That's not to say that government won't be intensely interested in this, and obviously GCHQ is the anchor for this development, but I, I found that quite interesting. I spent quite a lot of time in Cheltenham for family reasons, and you know it's really good to see a large sub-regional centre, uh, together with Gloucester, it could actually be uh, almost a uh, a city, a, a sort of a, a proper city powerhouse, you know, making significant progress. And it comes after our discussion, whenever it was a couple of months ago, about battery factories in Somerset. And I suppose for all of the professionals in our field, you can make significant progress without necessarily um, majoring on either the area-based initiatives, the zonal game, or indeed the um, the Devo game. 
but but does it does it illustrate? I mean, that particular example that you used. I mean, I'm 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 certainly no expert on the cyber security industry, but if, if I was coming at this cold, and someone said to me, "Okay, you know, you're going to establish a cyber security center of excellence or some commercial development that that is focused on that," where in the country would you put that? Cheltenham would be number one on the top of my list purely because, you know, that is the home of the leading institution for cybersecurity, of course. You know, that's where you would put it. So it's kind of an example of factor endowment, isn't it? You know, you have this government institution um, in GCHQ, the National Cybersecurity Centre. If you were going to put anything around cybersecurity anywhere, it would surely be where the top talent is. Cheltenham would be in there, surely, um, if you were to do that. And of course, now that we've mentioned it, they're no doubt listening in on us as we speak. <laughs> I, look, I think you're right, but it's remarkable how often that doesn't happen. And to go back to the yeah. aforementioned Cornwall Devo deal, I was particularly struck by, for example, how little space was mentioned, given that Cornwall actually does have some factor endowments that would make it a good location for England, at least, you know, in some space telecoms and, and so on. And they've put a huge amount of effort into it. So it doesn't always follow. And I wish Cheltenham and indeed Gloucestershire good luck with it. I fear we should draw this to a close. Um, for those of uh, our listeners who have stuck with us through the year, thank you very much. And I, uh, I think we would both wish to, uh, uh, to wish you season's greetings. Make make LED Confidential's back catalogue your present of choice to, to valued family members. And they'll be forever grateful. And of course, direct them to our website at ledconfidential.co.uk and encourage them to leave their thoughts on this and other episodes. Until the next time, have a great seasonal break. <laughs>